The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. And today we're going to be looking at the book of Deuteronomy. I always want to start off and give credit to this source. Um, Bruce Wilkinson and Kenneth Boa, very helpful book on surveying all the books of the Bible, New Testament as well as Old Testament. And another work that I'm using today is a book called The Distinctives of Baptist Covenant Theology. And the subtitle is A Comparison Between 17th Century Particular Baptist and Pado-Baptist Federalism. That's a mouthful. It's by Pascal Denault. He's a Frenchman. He's either French or French-Canadian. I'm not sure. But as you know, the Presbyterians believe in infant baptism. And Baptists, we believe in believer's baptism only. And I, I wanted to bring the book and just let you know about it. It's only about 150 pages. And it kind of lays out uh, covenants, the different covenants that God has made with, with mankind and with different individuals and also theological covenants. God always operates with mankind by oath-bound promises, by covenants that he's made. And Pascal Denal is really helpful in comparing the Presbyterian view of the covenants compared to um, Baptist covenant theology. It's, it's not a complicated read. I mean, it, the, the issues are complicated, but he, he really makes it simple. He has a lot of charts in here. And um, if you're interested in digging deeper on maybe comparing the old covenant with the new covenant and then looking at all the different covenants, this is a great book to read by Pascal Denault. Well, with those things behind me, let me pray and ask God to bless our Sunday school. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what an awesome privilege we have to gather, to worship you, to sit under the preaching and teaching of your word. How gracious you've been to us in giving us your son, giving us your spirit, giving us health and life. We praise you and thank you for your goodness and we do pray that you would come and Bless the Lord's Day. Bless the worship service to come. Bless the preaching. Please bless visitors that come that are still outside of Christ and have mercy upon them. Please bless your people and strengthen us. Please help us to be more and more in love with you, more and more fearing your name, more and more conformed to the likeness of your Son. We do pray for all the children classes today that you would be with them and bless them, plant seeds in their hearts, we pray, that would sprout to eternal life. Help all the teachers, help myself, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. I was telling my brother Gonzalez this morning, who is... I don't think I'm exaggerating to say he's an Old Testament scholar. He can read the Bible in the original Hebrew. And so to go over a survey of an Old Testament book, I majored in elementary education. Um, it's kind of, um, 
from a human perspective, daunting. But knowing that God is here to help and bless, it's not so daunting. So Pastor Gonzalez, jump in anytime. Um, we're going to cover this lesson today under these four headings, roughly these four headings, background issues and historical context, literary nature of the book, a general structure and outline of the book, and then some kind of a hodgepodge theological and practical themes of the book. Under this first heading, I have five points that I want us to look at. We're gonna look at an introduction and title to Deuteronomy, the author of the book, we're gonna look at the date and setting of Deuteronomy, the theme and purpose of the book, and then Deuteronomy's contribution to the Bible. And I found this quote from Martin Luther and I thought it was, thought it was helpful. Martin Luther, the great reformer, German reformer, said this, there are many who consider Moses and the whole Old Testament of a very small value and claim to be content with the gospel. From this opinion, the Christian man must be far, far removed. I remember reading uh, in a very um, helpful book that 40% of the New Testament is quotes from the Old Testament and 70% of the New Testament are either quotes or allusions to the Old Testament. So when we talk about the gospel, we're not just talking about the New Testament, we're talking about the whole Bible. The whole Bible is the good news about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah who was promised immediately after man sinned in the garden. God made a promise to send the seed of the woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. And then the whole Old Testament develops that, that, um, that theme of the coming Messiah until it's fulfilled in the new covenant when he comes born of a virgin. Also by way of introduction, I just wanna, I want us to think about some of the covenants. What is a covenant? A covenant is an oath-bound promise that God makes to man or mankind. An oath-bound promise that God makes. And it's, it's amazing to think that the almighty God, maker of the universe, who's infinite in all of his attributes, who's holy and pure in his moral character, who's powerful and wise and majestic, that he would condescend and make oath-bound promises to us. That's daunting. One of, one, of the, one of the things about the gospel is that in the new covenant, your sins are washed away and God makes promises to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. He promised that your sins were punished on the cross, were punished by a substitute, by his very own incarnate son. And that's a, a, 
an oath-bound promise, and he cannot punish your sins twice. He's already punished your sins in the Savior, so he can't punish them in you. You're his child. He's already set you free and liberated you from your sins and washed you from all your sins. Now, he is your father, and because you're no longer in the courtroom, you're now in the living room, he's going to love you. And every father that loves a child disciplines their child. But isn't it amazing to think that God has promised certain things to us, and he is faithful to all of his promises. He keeps his promises. Some of the covenants that you'll come across if you buy this book and as you read the Bible, is the covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, a covenant with Moses. We call it the old covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, the covenant of grace. And there's all these theological covenants. We talk about the covenant of redemption and the covenant of works. These are all promises that God has made and he's always kept them. He made a promise to Abraham about what would happen to his seed. A child born to his wife when she was 100 years old. A promised seed would come and a great nation would be be birthed. And we've been learning about that as we go through the book of Exodus. God made promises to Abraham and he keeps those promises. So this is how God deals with, with humankind through covenant. So now let's think about the title of Deuteronomy, a little introduction here. Deuteronomy has been called Moses' Upper Desert Discourse, which consists of a series of farewell messages by Israel's 120-year-old leader. It is addressed to the new generation destined to possess the land of promise, those who survived the 40-year wilderness wanderings. Like Leviticus, Deuteronomy contains a vast amount of legal detail, but its emphasis is on the layman rather than the priests. Moses reminds the new generation of the importance of obedience if they're to learn from the sad example of their parents. The Hebrew title of Deuteronomy is Davarim, or the words, taken from the opening phrase in chapter one, verse one, these are the words. The parting words of Moses to the new generation are given in oral and written form so that they will endure to all generations. Deuteronomy has been called five-fifths of the law since it completes the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. The Jewish people have also called it Mishnah HaTorah, repetition of the law, which is translated in the Septuagint which is the Greek Old Testament, as tu Deuteronomion tuto, this second law. Deuteronomy, however, is not a second law, but just an adaptation and expansion of much of the original law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. The English title comes from the Greek title Deuteronomion, second law. Deuteronomy has also been appropriately called the book of of remembrance. Imagine if you were that new generation and your parents and grandparents had died in the wilderness and here you are 
on the east side of the Jordan about to go in and take the land that God had promised. Your ancestors had been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. Your parents and grandparents had died in the desert and here you are among Joshua and Caleb about to go into the land and Moses, a 120 year old prophet, an amazing prophet, is about to die and he's gonna bless Joshua as Joshua takes them in to the land. That's the, that's the setting of where, we're are, where we are with the book of Deuteronomy. So here's a, a list of some, some information about the author Moses. We're not gonna go through all of it. Um, there, there are scholars today, Christian scholars, that actually debate whether Moses even wrote this book. And there's a lot of, a lot of garbage thrown at um, those that believe Moses wrote the book. That's the only reason I wanted to bring all of these evidences, both external evidence and internal evidence, that Moses did write this book. And you'll go to the secular university or even some seminaries. You'll go to some seminaries and grab their textbook and they're actually teaching some of this garbage. Questioning who wrote these books. So it's important that we understand that there's much evidence, both externally as well as internally, that Moses wrote this book and it is indeed the word of God. One of the interesting passages is in Matthew chapter four where Jesus is, uh, after he has fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he's tempted by the devil, well Jesus quotes Deuteronomy three times. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, it says, man shall not live by bread alone. And as Satan was tempting Christ, he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy to Satan when he was tempted in the wilderness. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's a powerful verse in Deuteronomy, isn't it? So often as human beings, we get wrapped up in economics, going to work, making our money, investing our money, preparing to provide for our children, and we're to, it's important that we do that. We're actually commanded to do that. But we get wrapped up in it, and we forget that man does not live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus told this to Satan and we get to listen in and hear it. May God's word feed us day by day, week by week, because man shall not live by bread alone. And then in Deuteronomy 6.16, he tells Satan, quoting from, from Deuteronomy, in Matthew 4, Jesus says, you shall not test the Lord your God. Quoting from Deuteronomy, speaking to Satan, he quotes Deuteronomy and says, you shall not test the Lord your God. Imagine if you were going through the wilderness wanderings and you were seeing all the, all the miracles that, that God had done for you. Opening the Red Sea, he's, he's with you with the Shekinah glory, the, with the fire at night and the cloud by day and he's leading you, he's bringing you manna and, 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 and meat from heaven, taking you to the promised land and you're saying, I'm scared, 
I want to go back. I don't believe Moses. I don't believe the promises. I want to go back. This is, this is how we test the Lord, is when we don't believe his promises, when we don't trust him. And we look inward at ourselves. We look at our fears. And we look at our weakness instead of looking to God's word. You shall not test the Lord your God. And then Jesus, later on in, in uh, Matthew 4, verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 6 and, and, and also chapter 10, verse 20, where he says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. You shall worship the Lord your God. You know, right now we're, we're, we're learning from the word of God. We're being taught, and we're thinking with our minds. But that's not all God wants from us. He wants what we learn in our minds to touch our hearts. He wants our affections. He wants our deepest desires to fear him and to worship him. We're to worship the Lord our God. That's what he wants us to do. God wants us to be moved in our affections, to worship him. And so he says to Satan, away with you, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God. Open to uh, the book of Acts if you have your Bibles. Acts chapter 3. Now this is where Peter and John went up to the temple together and there's a lame man, a crippled man that was healed by Peter and John. And all the people rushed to, 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 together to find out what's going on. This guy that was crippled and, and couldn't move and everyone knew him. He was always there in the temple and now he's walking and leaping and praising God and He's holding on to Peter and John. And then look at verse 12. I want to read verses 12 through 26. It says, let's start in verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, Solomon's greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at this? As though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, who you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, 
I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of, his, of all of his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. began. And here's verse 22. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So there, Moses is being quoted as saying, there's a coming prophet greater than I am who will come and you will listen to him. Jesus has come, died on the cross and risen, and Peter was able to heal this lame man through the power of God. Have you experienced the power of God, the risen, the risen Savior? Have you experienced that power in your heart? Are you born again? Are you born again? Or is this just a bunch of words to you? Well, I think looking at this passage, knowing that Jesus believed Moses was the author and Jesus quoted it as God's word, that's enough for me to believe the same. So number three under this first heading, date and setting of Deuteronomy. Like Leviticus, Deuteronomy does not progress historically. It takes place entirely on the plains of Moab, due east of Jericho and the Jordan River. So I'm not sure if I can point with this. Whoops. But if you look over here on this map, you can see Moab by the Dead Sea. It's on the east side of the Dead Sea. That's where, a little bit north of that, that's where Moses was with this new generation that's about to cross into, across the river, into the promised land. The whole book takes place in, in like 40 days in that area, after the wilderness wanderings. Numbers takes us through the wilderness wandering. Deuteronomy plants us right there on the plains of Moab before the people of Israel are gonna take the promised land that God had promised hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago through his prophet Abraham. Deuteronomy covers about one month and it was written at the end of the 40-year period in the wilderness, 1405 B.C., when the new generation was on the verge of entering Canaan, Moses wrote it to encourage the people to believe and obey God in order to receive God's blessing. You know, believe and obey. We can't obey and we won't obey unless we have faith in God's word. Faith comes by hearing that word. We need to believe it in order to obey it. And this is why it's so important that we, that we read the word of God and that we believe the word of God, that we take those promises right to our heart and believe them 
so that we can fight Satan and fight sin and fight our remaining corruption and fight the world, which is bring us lies all the time. We need to fight those lies with the truth. We need to believe the truth so that we can mortify our sins. Believe and obey. Next, the theme and purpose of Deuteronomy. Beware lest you forget. What an awesome statement that is. Beware lest you forget. This idea of forgetting is like the opposite of believing. It's the opposite of faith. Faith brings the truth close to us. We're, we're, we're apt to forget the truth. So we must beware. We must be vigilant. Beware lest you forget is a key theme in Deuteronomy. Moses emphasizes the danger of forgetfulness because it leads to arrogance and disobedience. It leads to pride. I'm okay. I don't need the resources, the means of grace that God's provided. I'm okay. I'm okay by myself. I can walk the walk without meditating on God's word. That's arrogant. For you to not read God's word, to not meditate on God's word, is arrogance, it's pride. You might say, no, it's not, it's, I'm just being lazy, I'm really busy. No, you're being arrogant and prideful because you think you can walk the walk through this fallen world with three serious, deadly enemies, the devil, the world, and your own remaining sin, and you can do that without his word. That's arrogance. That's justification for sin. Man shall not live by bread alone. We must remember two things. Number one, when we prosper, it is God who has caused it. It is God who has caused it. And number two, when we disobey God, he will discipline us because he loves us. He loves us. He disciplined these, these people about to go in to the promised land. He disciplined their parents and grandparents. And he, Moses wants to make them aware of these two important things. When you prosper, it's God's, it's God's grace that prospers you. When you disobey, it's your own sin and God will discipline you. That's important. This reminds me of the word thankfulness. Everything that we have every day, our jobs, our food, our spouses, our children, all the things that we have are because God has blessed us. God has blessed us. When we prosper, it's because God caused it and we must be thankful. Deuteronomy is a call to obedience as a condition to blessing. God has always been faithful to his covenant and he now extends it to the new generation. Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal document that uses the same format as Near Eastern treaties in the time of Moses. These treaties had the following elements. Now, I was talking to Brother Gonzalez and he brought out an interesting point. He said that when God deals with his people at different epochs of time, whether it's back at the time of Abraham or whether it's 
in Egypt or here we are before the promised land. He always condescends and speaks to, speaks to them in a language that they can understand. And this, this um, Near Eastern treaty format that is laid out here is something that the people of Israel and the nation of Israel would be familiar with because it was common to the nations all around them. So God spoke through Moses in the same way, condescending to them using a preamble, which is a list of the parties making the treaty, and we see that in verse, chapter one, verses one through five. Number two, a historical prologue or the benevolent dealings of the king in the past. So from chapter uh, one, verse six, all the way to chapter four, verse 43, Moses is rehearsing all the things God had done uh, for the nation up to that point. And then stipulations. Number three, this was part of the Near Eastern treaties that Moses used. He said that there are gonna be conditions this is a conditional government, a conditional covenant. If you do this, you'll live. If you don't do this, you'll be punished. So the old covenant is conditional on their obedience. And then a ratification, blessings and cursings in chapters 27 through 30. And then finally, um, number five there, continuity. Provisions for maintaining the covenant, chapters 31 through 34. This is an emphasis on choice. And the people are urged to choose life rather than death. They are told to hear 50 times. They're told to do, keep, or observe 177 times. God's commands out of a heart of love 21 times. And the last point here under this first heading is Deuteronomy's contribution to the Bible. Now, this could, we could take months and months studying Deuteronomy's contribution to the Bible, but this is something that this particular survey wants us to highlight. Deuteronomy is a, supplement, a supplementary book to the rest of the Pentateuch and fills a role similar to that of the Gospel of John compared to the Synoptic Gospels. And Pastor, uh, or Dr. Bob, if you want to comment on this, you can, but let me finish. This is obviously a, a, met, a metaphor here. This particular writer is saying that he believes Deuteronomy plays a role with the other four books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, plays a role similar that John, the Gospel of John plays in the New Testament. You know the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke because in the synoptic Gospels there. They're um, similar in their sequence and their series. But John is distinct in its style from the, those three synoptic gospels. He deals with theological themes that focus on the person and work of Christ. Jesus is the source of eternal life and he focuses on Christ's person and work. Not so much following the same sequence and events that the synoptic gospels do. So it says here that Deuteronomy fills in missing elements and gives the spiritual significance of the history found in the other books of Moses. Genesis to Numbers portray God's ways, but Deuteronomy reveals God's love. And then he has a chart there. You'll notice on the left, the books from Genesis to Numbers, he says, 
developed the history of Israel. They showed the divine performances, God intervening. And then God speaks to Moses. But in Deuteronomy, there's a little bit of a shift. It shows the philosophy of Israel's history, the divine principles that God lays out, and then Moses speaks to the people. The emphasis on God's love in this book was a crucial step for Israel's understanding. Deuteronomy was often quoted by Jesus Christ. And I wanted to look at some of those passages in the book that emphasize love. Deuteronomy 4, 37 38. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring in, to bring you in, to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. He loved your fathers. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, the Lord did not set his love on you nor, cho- nor choose you because you were more in number than they, or excuse me, more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's a powerful verse. We can relate that to our own salvation. You know why the Lord saved you? Because you're gorgeous. No. (laughs) You know why the Lord saved you? Because you're a very good person. No. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We deserve hell because God is holy. But the Lord saved you because he set his love upon you. He set his love upon you. That's why he saved you. Nothing to do with you. I was thinking about this and I went up to my wife and I said, do you know why I love you? And she's kind of smiled. (laughs) And I think she thought I was going to say something like, you're a good cook or you like to mow the lawn. I'm one of the few husbands in this church whose wife mows his lawn. (laughs) She likes it. (laughs) Or she's beautiful. But I didn't. I had had just studied this and I I, I just wanted to kind of test. And I said, the reason I love you is because I've chosen to love you. And there's no other woman in the whole world that I choose to love but you. That's what God has done for us. It's not because we're good. It's not because we were born into the right family. What a blessing to hear. I don't want to embarrass them, but what a blessing to just a, a month or so ago to hear Johnny and Nikki's testimonies. So lost, so far, far, far away from God's love. And he chose them. He chose them. It's amazing. People who, who loved the occult, people who, who shook their fist against God and he wraps his arms around them and, 
chooses to love them. It's beautiful. Deuteronomy 10, 15. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. And then finally, Deuteronomy 23, 5. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Mm. Well, there's a few more passages about love and this brings us to our second point with five minutes left. (laughs) Second point, which is the literary nature of the book and I'll just read this quickly. Deuteronomy is a sermon given by Moses. It's a sermon given by Moses. Deuteronomy is given to us in a language, style, and literary form that conveys its message with persuasion and power. God aided and inspired writers as they chose the best literary style and form for his purpose. He aided in the use of appropriate poetics to drive home his theological and historical messages. The word most descriptive of the book is found in chapter 1, verse 5. Deuteronomy is Torah. And this particular author opened up what Torah means. It includes story. It includes history. It includes teaching, instruction, law, Yahweh's words. Torah is both theological and historical, both relational and legal, both prophetic and historical. These elements are fused together in Deuteronomy so closely that they're inseparable. The book must be read as one dynamic living message. It is not primarily legal material, but it's story with law embedded into it. The word of God is living. It's dynamic. Because the giver of the word of God is living. Our God lives, and his word, this word, is a living book full of power and life if we will read it. Amen? Number three, a brief survey of Deuteronomy. And basically what this does is kind of tells you the three parts of this long sermon that Moses gave. Part one is from chapter one to chapter four, verse 43 where he basically deals with the past, how God had judged their fathers and how he had delivered them out of the land of Egypt. And he kind of rehearses what happened through the book of Numbers. And then next, from the next part of Deuteronomy, from chapter four to chapter 26, 19, here we see the moral and legal section and it's the longest part of the book. And then third, for the sake of time, I wanted to get a few other things in. The third part of the sermon from chapters 27 to 34, Moses lists the terms of the covenant, the Mosaic or old covenant, soon to be ratified by the people. Because Moses will not be allowed to enter the land, he appoints Joshua as his successor and delivers a farewell address to the multitude. God himself buries Moses in an unknown place, perhaps to prevent idolatry. Moses finally enters the promised land. Now, this is interesting. 
I did, this wasn't in a lot of the commentaries. Just this particular survey put it. Moses finally enters the promised land when he appears with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. So if you read Matthew 17, Moses and Elijah come there to meet with Christ and, and, and uh, Christ is transfigured there. I thought that was interesting. We won't take the time to read it. But the last part of Moses couldn't have been written by Moses because he was dead. So scholars believe the very last part was probably written by Joshua. They don't know for sure. And we read uh, towards the end of the book here. Um, I wanted to take us through verses 5 through 12, but I won't. Just verses 9 and 10 through 12 here. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all that great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. I wanted to show this to you. Um, I, I took this from this book, uh, Pascal Denault's book on the covenants. And I wanted to just show you th- uh, some of the differences between the old covenant and the new covenant. In the old covenant, the promises are conditional on Israel's obedience. In the old covenant, there are temporary earthly blessings and everything we see is uh, typological. It's it's like they're illustrations or metaphors of the coming Messiah. They're types of Christ. And then in the old covenant, eternal life was not given. But the new covenant, the new covenant promises are unconditional. They're unconditional. Heavenly blessings of eternal life are in the new covenant. Jesus Christ fulfills all the types and shadows of the Old Testament. And the forgiveness of sins is obtained by the mediator, Jesus Christ. Jeremiah tells us about the new covenant. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Now this is talking about you as a believer in Jesus Christ. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Can anything be better than that? Can anything be better than that, that our sins are forgiven? Praise God. Well, I wanted to show you the benefit of the Old Covenant through Pascal Denault's words here. The goal of the Old Covenant with the physical posterity of Abraham and the law was not futile. It was not meaningless since it consisted in leading to Christ. This end was accomplished in at least three ways. According to the 17th century Baptist author's understanding number one the old covenant preserved both 
the messianic lineage and the covenant of grace. You know, the holy war began in Genesis, Genesis 3.15, when, when God told the serpent that the seed of the woman is gonna crush your head. Well, the seed of the woman was the coming Messiah. And all through the Old Testament, you read of a holy war between El Shaddai, between God himself and Satan, the fallen angel. There's a holy war. Satan is let loose on this earth, this fallen earth. And there's a battle going on, and the battle is a battle for our souls. And it started in the garden, and it progressed all through the Old Testament. And you can see that Satan, through pagans and through unbelievers, tried to kill the seed. Tried to kill the seed that would, the coming Messiah would come from. You see it all throughout the Old Testament in the prophets. You see it in the book of Esther. You see it, all this, this, this theme of crushing, of crushing. There's, there's a holy war going on. So by preserving both the messianic lineage and the covenant of grace, also this old covenant's not futile because it points typologically towards Christ. It bolsters our faith and even helps the faith of Old Testament believers that were born again. And number three, by imprisoning everything under sin in order that the only means to obtain the promised inheritance was through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, believing in Jesus Christ, trusting in him, being saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is the only way to get to heaven. There's no other way. And the old covenant preserved these things. I know we're out of time. And I apologize. We'll stop there. Let's pray and be dismissed. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us how you condescended and intervened and participated in the lives of sinners. We thank you for Abraham. We thank you for the nation of Israel. We thank you for the old covenant and how it pointed to Christ. And oh, Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his virgin birth, that he became fully man and yet fully God and died on the cross for sinners. We thank you that even now he sits at your right hand and reigns and rules over all things. We thank you that you've given us faith. We thank you for the grace of faith. We pray that you would increase our faith and strengthen our faith even in the coming hours we worship you through singing and through praying, through listening to the preached word. Oh Father, meet with us we pray. We love you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org. 
www.ocmedia.org.